over the last few years, I, I guess the, the main thing is me uh, when I get into a race. I think it's what's like kind of changed like my trajectory, at least in the road stuff, was that I don't want to look at times anymore. Um, that was a big thing in the roads. Like I, I don't want to look at times. I just want to compete. People would ask like, "Oh, what are you shooting for?" I'm like, "I just want to compete." And that's like kind of been my answer for everyone in, in most races that I've done. Like over the last many years, there's been a couple times like I've gone out to a race at the competition. You could tell it wasn't going to be too stout, and you know you go out for time or course record on that by yourself. But when there's big competition. It's it's just strictly about competing to me. What's up, everyone? That was Anthony Costales. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Really excited to share this one with you. Anthony recently won the Canyons 100K in Northern California in 9 hours, 11 minutes, and 40 seconds, defeating a stout field, which earned him a golden ticket to this year's Western States Endurance Run. He's only a few years into the trail and ultra game and is really starting to make a splash in the sport. A graduate of Chico State, Anthony has a 213 marathon personal best on the roads. He won the U.S. Trail Marathon Championship in 2018 and also represented the U.S. that year at the World Long Distance Mountain Championships in Poland, where he finished 10th overall. Anthony's a native of Fairfield, California. He now lives and teaches middle school PE in Salt Lake City, Utah, and he's a relatively new dad. In this conversation, we talked about Anthony's most recent win, of course, but also his progression in the sport, how he's shifted his training in recent years, and the physiological and psychological differences of racing on the trails versus competing on the roads. Anthony told me why he calls himself a silent competitor. We discussed why shorter distance trail races don't get nearly the respect and attention of ultra distance events, and a lot more. A big thank you to Tracksmith for their continued support of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of the sport. They recently released their spring collection full of stylish gear perfected for the pursuit of personal excellence. It's designed for running hard and logging miles as the season shifts. My favorite piece from this latest collection is the Reggie Half Tight with a built-in liner, folks. They also have a non-lined version of this piece, but I'm telling you, once you go lined, you will never go back. At least I won't anyway. They're perfect for these cool spring mornings, and I love wearing them for track workouts when it's time to run fast. Right now, Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Just use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out at Tracksmith.com. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Man, I just love these sunglasses. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all... They're super fun. They come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. 
Gooders are also super affordable with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece, which makes them way more appealing than the expensive shades you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or maybe two pair or three of Gooders and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your entire order. Your face will thank you. All right, that's all I've got for right now. Please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with Anthony Costales. Here's where I want to start. Now, I know you're a California kid. You're born in Fairfield. You ran an American River in Chico State collegiately, but now you call Salt Lake City home. How long have you been living there? Um, I've been living there seven years, uh, seven, working on eight years now. What brought you there? Um, my now wife uh, and girlfriend at the time, um, she, we both went to Chico together, and I had another year left in school for a teaching credential, and um, she was ready to kind of get going out of Chico. She'd been there for a while and found a job out here. She had a little bit of family and then um, the job that she got, she ended up kind of getting another job out here that was quite a bit better and um, drew me out to come visit her. And and once I took the visit, kind of couldn't take me away. There's just so much uh, recreation, great recreational stuff right in the city that has like a lot of opportunity for like having a full-time job. What was that transition like for you because salt lake city and, and utah as a state it's very different from california especially where you grew up yeah it was uh there's a lot of differences um everyone always goes straight to like the like alcohol laws or the religion out here but i mean it really wasn't too much different i mean i didn't notice too much like if like you were someone that really likes to go out a whole lot then yeah you'd notice it there's some weird laws out here but um, yeah, there wasn't too much, uh, too many weird things other than, like I said, like different types of laws. And that goes on both, both sides. What was that transition like for you from a running standpoint, going from California, mostly at sea level, even though I know you could get into the mountains from time to time to being like in the mountains and at altitude at almost all times. Um, it took a little bit of time. It didn't take a crazy amount of time but uh i remember some of the first workouts there's like a chico one that we call humboldt hill that we just kind of did fart looks up at or like three two ones with stops in the middle and i did the same thing up at canyon road here and like the very first like three minutes into it i was like oh my gosh i don't know if i could do this <laughs> and uh so i just kind of had to learn a little bit more patience um whenever people are transitioned into altitude i always kind of tell them like uh, 1200 is just as valuable as like a mile, mm-hmm. um, on the track. Like if you get through like a, the same pace that you would at sea level at a mile, it's pretty close to like a 1200 depending all, I mean, of course, depending on the, how high you are, but, um, that just kind of has always been like my easy, quick comparison. Do you feel that you've made any noticeable or significant gains since spending most of your time at altitude from a training and racing standpoint? There wasn't like any like one moment where I felt like a lot of significant games gains. Um, it was, has been a lot just over time. 
I remember uh, the first year, you know, being out here, it was like six, seven months later, I came out to San Francisco, ran a 5K and um, set a PR out there. But I did remember like thinking like, man, it is a little bit easier to breathe right now um, mm-hmm. when, when I was like midway through that 5K. Um, but there hasn't, there was never like one workout where I was like, wow, like this is because of altitude, but it, definitely accumulation over time. Over the past few years, you've started doing more racing on the trails and at ultra distances. I mean, your background is in cross country and track. You moved up to the marathon after college. You've posted some pretty fast times on the road. Was it when you moved to Utah that you really started getting interested in exploring these other facets of running? I'd love to learn when that started for you. So for like the tra- trails itself, uh, I mean, I felt kind of always felt like a trail runner being like from Chico. We, I've said before, like we always ran somewhere long and far on um, Sundays in a trail. It was never a kind of just your simple bike path, path mm-hmm. run. Um, that was because Gary would take us a pretty much a anywhere from 20 to 45 minute drives away to go get some really cool scenery in the area. And kind of just get out of the little Chico bubble for like that few hours. So I've always like kind of really loved the trails and always kind of been on the trails. It wasn't till Tim, I think won that 50 K um, in his trail debut that I really started kind of understanding and noticing the trail scene just cause I never really dug it too much into it. And um, from there, it just kind of kept, uh, kind of just kept, kept going from there. Aside from the trail scene and the competitive aspect of it, what is it about trails in general that were appealing to you? Um, definitely going to see new places that are amazing. I mean, you could go to some of these big city marathons, but I've never really been a big city person, but mm-hmm. I've always loved being in the mountains or going <clears throat> to different different uh, mountain towns. And that's kind of what you get with the trail scene. And that, that, that was the biggest draw to it. Uh, just seeing all these, these awesome places that I kind of didn't even know existed. What was it about Tim's result in that 50K? I think you're alluding to his first national title that he won outside of Bend. I think it was 2014 or 2015 at this point that really kind of caught your eye and caught your attention. And for our listeners, he's <clears> talking <throat> about Tim Tollefson, who is a fellow Chico State grad and full disclosure, one of my athletes who I've been coaching uh, since just after that race, actually a few months later, we started working together. Um, so at the time I was kind of in between transitions, I guess, but Tim and I, we never ran together at Chico with each other, but um, I would go up to Mammoth um, and say it kind of one of the places that is, and his other roommate was one of my best friends at the time. So we knew each other pretty well. But yeah, we were on SRA, Sacramento Elite together, and uh, he was in the marathon scene, so he was already kind of a mentor a little bit to me mm-hmm. on um, post-collegiate running, and like I ran my very first half marathon with him, and um, yeah, when, once I saw him do that, it was, one, it was cool because it was just, oh, a, nation, a national title always kind of catches your eye, mm-hmm. and um, that was the first thing, and then just kind of hearing or talking to him and seeing where he was going with it and just how quickly he evolved in the sport was just pretty appealing. You most recently won the Canyons 100K, which is your most significant victory so far in the trail 
an ultra scene and we'll we'll get into that here in a bit but when did you decide to take the dive into actual trail racing and get out there and decide all right this is something i want to explore and actually compete at um so in 2000 let's see 14 or so was like kind of when i started like noticing the trail stuff mm-hmm. and then maybe t- 2015 and i just got a trials qualifier um then and you know just like it's so much funny how much different i am like and like how i think about things now but back then i was like oh i wanted to do some of these trail races but i also don't want to get hurt before the trials like roll an ankle or something minimal and I was thinking about doing, which I've done many times, a Moab Trail Marathon. But I had like a few people like, you can't do that like two months before the trials. That's like a really dumb idea. So, so you know, it kind of that's what kind of held me back for maybe like six months to a year, like coming into the sport. And then um, the following year was when after the trial, so it's still 2016, um, the Moab Marathon still had the U.S. Championship bid for um, trail marathon. So I went out there and did it. Um, definitely ran it like a rookie. Didn't have like a water bottle or thought I could get away with just aid stations and stuff. So, and got, got my butt kicked by like Joe, Joe Gray and Sage, Sage that day. Um, and from there I was like pretty hooked. It was just like so fun, like running fast on like really technical terrain and kind of just, uh, being like willing to that whole, I don't want to roll in ankles obviously has to get thrown out the window if you're doing trail races. Mm -hmm. And it was just a lot of fun. You came back what, like a year or two later and ended up winning that race. Um, so that was my first year doing it. Uh And then the second year I took second to Mario Mendoza. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the following year after that, I did it again and had an probably, probably one of my favorite races um was with Andy Wacker and like it was just a crazy battle like he was in front of me like the whole time but I just like just couldn't catch up to him and it came down to the last like 600 meters of a three-hour trail race and were you able to get by him yeah I was um I felt bad because he like threw in the towels I threw as I went by him but I was pretty lucky in the sense that I ran the course three times and if you look at and this is why I don't look at profiles like too indefinitely if i've never been to a place is like if you look at the profile of that the last three miles looks like it's like pancake flat but it is like the most terrible three miles of the race as it's like windy and sandy and just zero rhythm to it what was the post-race exchange like with andy wacker after you went by him with 600 meters to go he like national championship (laughs) sorry uh he like was like, good job. Like as I passed him and I, I got kind of mad. I'm like, no, like you got to compete. Like, like, don't just don't let me have it this way. And actually what was funny is like that we actually kind of got a little bit off course at the time. Um, because like there's like a small section where you're running on the road mm-hmm. and they had an arrow on the road for us to take a turn. But both of us are going probably like close to five minute pace, low five minute pace. So we're not looking down at the road but we were able to get back on it and it wasn't too big of a deal to the race um but we were on a um a mountain world championship team together in poland so we were already already knew each other were um pretty friendly and it was uh, it was just good peer competition and I, I love running against him he's he's a he's a hell of a competitor if people don't know his name 
Yeah, and pretty similar background to your own where he has run pretty fast, like over mm-hmm. cross-country courses and, you know, on the roads. And he really hasn't done a whole lot of trail ultra stuff, but he has been like really dominant over the shorter distance trail races. He's made U.S. mountain running teams. He just came out here to Marin not that long ago mm-hmm. and lit our well-known ninja loop which actually has since been broken uh funny how that happened that's funny like a week later but yeah i mean at these shorter trail races which i don't think get the respect that they deserve i mean he's no, as good as anyone we have here in this country yeah um it's funny like him and joe both were on our team and he kind of jokes he's like if joe gray, gray wasn't around he'd have like 10 more <laughs> national titles because he's been runner up to him like a ridiculous amount of times. And that's, I, that's why I kind of felt bad at the end of that race. Cause I was like, man, there's another runner up for Andy, but I mean, he, yeah, he's, uh, he's got it all. And, uh, and he, he shows his wheels when he wants to. And, um, again, like just one of my favorite like competitors in the sport. And I agree with that statement that the shorter stuff, like kind of doesn't, doesn't get it uh, on everybody's radar as much. Why do you think that's the case? Um, I think we like, uh, we like numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, we like hearing if it's not an ultra, it might not, it like almost like goes away from the sport. Um, which is kind of interesting because it's not that way so much in, uh, Europe. Right. Where, I mean, the mountain scene in general over there is a lot more robust and it's not just ultra distance races. It's vertical K's it's, it's shorter distances like Mont Blanc marathon, that type of stuff, uh, tends to just get more attention and draw more competitive fields than over here in the States. Yeah, I've always thought that's uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, you make an interesting point about the numbers side of it because I think in trails, a lot of people automatically go right to to ultra, and the longer the race, the more the more epic it is, mm-hmm. um, and people go to that because that's where all the attention is. I think a lot of athletes of your caliber end up going to that because the attention's there, but also the money is there if you're trying to do it as a as a professional athlete. And I do think some of the shorter stuff ends up suffering i mean a guy like joe gray who also you know has not really done a ton of ultra distance trail races i mean he is arguably and i don't even know if arguably is the right word he's the most dominant short distance trail runner mountain runner that we've ever seen here in the united states if not one of the best in the world oh i mean he's ridiculous um and again same thing like andy just a just fierce competitor um and you know like i've 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 won a lot of like uh, some of these trail these trail races, but those are like two guys that every time I've except the one time I race against Andy, those are two guys that have just like kicked my ass like no other. And like one of the times we were in Colorado Springs and did a thirty k thirty k national championship, and Joe just like flexes guns like in the first like quarter mile, and I was like, I'm not doing that today with you guys. <laughs> Going back to your first foray into trail racing you mentioned how at that moab marathon you didn't carry a bottle you just relied on the aid stations and you learned a lot from that experience what were some of the other learnings that you had when you were transitioning from the roads onto the trails for the first time um i guess uh the big one was this last um summer when i did a speed go mm-hmm. i got that was like my first like I've done a couple mountain races, but that was my first mountain ultra race. And then also just first mountain ultra. That's just ridiculously brutal. And, um, when I did that one, I 
you know, it wasn't a huge block I had because the timeline of finding out when we could do the race um, was short, but I was in a lot of more climbs than normal because it's good. It's a climbing race. And um, when I did that race, what I learned was I wasn't doing enough uh, stuff that like you have to walk at. Um, I was doing trails that were like still pretty steep that I could like get the VO2 max really high at and kind of muscle through. But I was very unexperienced and not doing well at uh, where you just physically have to power, power hike up. And that was a big thing that I kind of changed up, uh, I guess for the Canyons hundred K. Why do you think that is, does it have to do with your road racing and track background where walking is typically frowned upon? Um, I think training wise, that's, that was the problem. Like mm-hmm. I, you don't want to walk while you're training. Um, that, that was probably the reason for that. And yeah, I just, I just wasn't doing enough of that ridiculous steep stuff. And it also just sometimes seems silly. Like one of the runs that I've done, like more often now that I wasn't doing before, um, and speak out is, uh, one of the ones right outside of Salt Lake city. It's like right off our freeway. It's, uh, West Granger, uh, peak and it's, um, 2.2 miles and it climbs, uh, 3,200 feet. So it's just straight up. And, um, I never did that one before. And Noah in the parking lot of Spigo, we were talking about, he's like, you never done West Grander. I was like, no, it's like, I don't really just want to walk the whole, whole time. And, um, and then Noah kicked my ass that day. So then I started doing the West Grander. <laughs> How did you start incorporating walking into your training? Would you just go to West Grander like once a week and start hiking up it? Or were you just more deliberate in general about mixing strategic walking into your training so that you could improve at that aspect of it? Um, one of the trail systems we have out here is uh, right behind the University of Utah. It's like the Bonneville Shoreline Trail on the foothills. And there's like just a bunch of different spots you could be on pretty runnable trail the whole time. And then if you want, you could just hook onto another trail and for maybe two or three miles, just two or three miles total, you could do a quick thousand feet and then come right back down and then be right back on a runnable one. So I would like, I did more of that little stuff um, than I used to where before I'd always just be kind of more on the runnable trail. Staying on the topic of training, how has your training evolved over the past few years that you've been focusing more on trail and ultra distance races and moving up in distance in that ultra realm? I say the biggest thing is the long run. Um, I think uh, when I would do a marathon block, the longest run I'd usually do is 24 miles. Granted, that was with like a big set of tempo, mixed tempos in there. Um, but now 24 could just be like kind of a common Saturday mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I also, I'll get up to 30, 32s like here and there. But I think that's the biggest difference is that I could do 25 or 25 plus like week in, week out and it, not be too much of a good big deal where before it was like, that was like the highest week of training during a marathon block. So that's probably been the biggest change is just the long run. From a specificity standpoint, are you doing workouts that look similar to what you would do when you were training for a fast marathon and just translating them to the trails and going effort over pace? I'd love to dig into that a little bit more with you. 
Um, I do a lot of fart licks. Fart licks is probably what I do the most. Um, one, it's the for for me, it's the quickest bang for my buck on time wise. Uh, especially wanted to be back with my family as quick as possible. So I could a lot of times I run commute to work and then I'll right from work I'll go right into a workout. And um, when I do that, fart licks just have always been like my go to. So that's like still something I'll do even for trails, even though it's flat it kind of, to me, it kind of mimics like a hill for those few minutes. And then you kind of get more of a relaxing state. So that's what I do the most probably. Uh, and yeah, of course, and of course, like if I'm doing like a race with like a bunch of vert, like we did the other weekend, more in the long runs and a couple workouts here and there, like it will be like more vert base or um, climb base uh, workouts. Folks like us who ran in college and then moved up to the marathon, I mean, speaking for myself, and you can correct me if this wasn't the case for you, like I never tracked vert. I had no idea what it was before I got into trail and ultra stuff. Is that something that you're paying more attention to or tracking on a daily and weekly basis now? It took me a long time. I don't really do weekly vert because I'm not someone that's kind of, and I choose to not go on the trails every, all the time. So I try not to track weekly vert because I don't want to look at someone else's and be like, man, I'm 10,000 less a week than them. Mm -hmm. Because I I really try not to look at numbers too much because just different lifestyle, either what I'm doing at work or um, in training is just so much different than, you know, probably other people. And uh, yeah, it took a while for me to kind of really start tracking vert commonly. Now I do on those long runs. And any kind of workout that kind of has it in it, then I'll track it. But other than that, I try to stay away. Even if it's like an aerobic long run in the trails, I kind of try not to think about it too much. And um, and then when I'm in the city, I don't track it at all. We're having this conversation five days after you won the Canyons 100K. You secured a golden ticket to western states i can hear some hoarseness in your voice yeah. and i don't know if that's from interviews that you've done over the past week on top of you know just nine hours and i think what 10 or 11 minutes of racing but how are you feeling five days removed from your first 100k and arguably the biggest win of your ultra career to this point well the voice is strictly from uh, being a pe teacher and and that and I had this voice going on before going into canyons. Everyone kept on asking me if I was sick. And I was like, no, I just taught a couple of lessons that I had to talk too much and it hasn't came back. And then I've rolled it on and, and it's just kind of kept rolling. Uh, but the, for the body wise, uh, body, body feels re- really good. Um, I was really surprised how well it's bounce, bouncing back. Uh, there really isn't any too painful areas i did a four mile run on tuesday and then last night um my daughter and i had my daughter in like a running jog jogging shoulder and i was just kind of running like for two minutes and then walking with our dog because our dog wouldn't be able to keep up anyway and um yeah so and everything felt really good the weirdest thing that hurts the most is uh the thursday before the race i was doing a stretching workout with my students and uh it was like the very last class of the day and I like bent my neck down and like did some kind of muscle spasm happen. And 
it didn't really bother me at the race. It did a little bit in the beginning, but it went away quick. But that's what's bothering me the most right now is what's kind of irritating. Hazards of the job. Yeah, it was so weird. While we're on the topic, I mean, you've raced, I don't know how many high-level marathons at this point, but your PR is 213 and change. You've run into Olympic trials. I mean, there's a big difference on the ultra side of things between, say, a, a 50K and 100K, especially if the courses are very different. But like in general... How do you feel after an ultra versus after a hard road marathon? Um, for I always feel better after an ultra than a road marathon. Ro- road marathons are just <clears throat> completely brutal. Same muscles over and over, and you're maxing yourself out. Uh, I guess it really depends on the terrain. Uh, what I do, something like in Moab, it's maybe some tight calves, but usually the quads aren't really beat up. But if you do something like Speed Goat, yeah, that that trashed me pretty good um, because those descents are just so steep and you're just letting loose on them because you kind of need to. So definitely marathon on the road has been worse. I've actually bounced back really quick uh, from uh, the Moab Trail Marathon and uh, like a road marathon after. In the immediate weeks following a marathon and an ultra, how does your recovery differ will you take a set period of time off you mentioned how you just went for a four mile jog and you were running with your daughter and your dog i'm curious if there's a difference between coming off of a marathon and coming off of an ultra in terms of when you get back to running i think um the first week is pretty similar um i ran with amy hastings for a while here when she was training out with bowerman's group and she kind of gave me the tip like two days after the race like do a small shakeout than like every other day for a week. So I've kind of like used that since she, since uh, talking to her, but um, the big difference is after a road marathon, I feel like so much goes into that type of training and a race. And so demanding um, intensity wise that usually I'm like pretty much not running too much for the next three weeks where, and what I love about like the trail stuff is you could bounce back quite a bit quicker and kind of go into the next race i mean for instance like i just did the 50 i did a 50k and a 50 mile within the last few months where if i tried to do three marathons on the road in the month that would not go too well digging a little deeper into that from a mental and emotional standpoint does the build-up and race of a road marathon take more out of you than than the build-up and execution of a trail ultra yes uh road takes a whole lot more mentally um than than a trail i guess with a road marathon it's just so intensive base and it's so you're just so strict on what's going on it's it's really just demanding um and with the trails you get to do a lot of just fun stuff i think and i think that's the that's one of the biggest difference in like the training block um, and you're just like, I don't know. It's like hard to say. Sorry. Take your time. Yeah, so no, my dog just came in. So it's like, get out of here. Um, so, I, you know, it's funny you say that. Cause my, my dog usually sits in the room with me sometimes when I record. Uh-huh. Um, 
but he also likes to look out the window and if he sees something outside like a squirrel or something that triggers triggers him he'll go crazy yeah. um, so i've had to i've actually had to like shut him out for podcast but as soon as i open this door he'll be sitting outside with the most he, pathetic face he, i thought i thought the door was open and she just like barged in and like totally screwed up my yeah, thought yeah. but it's okay so yeah i, I guess like it's just uh, road marathons are mentally exhausting I get, the biggest when i first started doing them you get in these cycles of spring, fall, mm-hmm. and then spring, fall, spring, fall. And that was the exhausting part to me. I did like my first first marathon debut and it went really well. And then I tried doing some like more local ones out here. And it was going okay, but it, it, it was just really exhausting doing. As soon as you get done, you get a few weeks off and you kind of start preparing for the next one. And that's what I didn't like about the training and just the repetitiveness. And then it took like one one marathon out here that just really taught me a lot that I didn't want to do that much anymore. And it was uh, the Utah Valley marathon. And I just, I just got my ass kicked by a bunch of foreigners that day that just kept on yo-yoing back and forth. And it was just one of the hardest races I ever did. And once I got done with it, I remember just saying to my wife, I was like, I'm not running a marathon for 18 months. I'm just, I'm just done with it. Like I need a break. And then after that was a, the next time I did run a marathon was when I did like pop a really big PR. How important was that 18 month break? Assuming that you ended up taking that entire time for you leading into that big breakthrough in the marathon, where I believe the one you're talking about is where you ran two thirteen at the U S championships. Yeah. I, I, it, I think it was a, it was really big because I think I accumulated a lot of fitness and didn't really know how fit I was. So it was kind of fun going into that race, just not going for a time and just strictly competing. Mm-hmm. That was probably the number one thing. I always race a lot better when I'm really hungry for a race. And if you're doing the same race every six months, that hunger kind of goes away. I always kind of like joked when Shalane ran uh, New York that day. I remember it was right after the, I was in Moab that day doing the trail marathon. And I just remember say, saying like, I got a feeling she's going to pop a big one today because she's been deprived of a marathon for longer than she's been in a long time. And I don't know, maybe I got lucky, but she did, you know? So I think that's like one thing I think is like not doing the same thing over and over is, uh, is one thing that helps me. I don't want to go too much further without talking about canyons, which we've mentioned here a few times and you did win going into that race how are you feeling? What was the mentality and the mindset as you were about to step on the line against a competitive field with a couple golden tickets on the line? Um, one of the mindsets was I, I knew I was really fit. Uh, I had a really weird last month of training. So I did that behind the rocks 50 miler, which was more for just uh, working out kinks and figuring out things I needed to do for canyons. And my foot kind of got um, pretty um, ached up because of it. And so training wasn't really what I wanted to be the last uh, month, last five weeks. So that was kind of, I kept on saying to myself, like, like a, a little stress, I'm going to be a little stressed, but I'm, I'm going to be fresh at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I kind of just kept saying that over and over when like looking at the course, like, and there's a lot of people from Salt Lake city and everybody else talking about it. They were just talking about how hard of a course it is, which and I'm not going to say it wasn't a hard course, but I just didn't think just knowing the California trails that what we were doing over here, I just thought was going to be easier. So I think that was a, 
a good mindset. Like as long as I can make it a lot harder over here when I get over there, even if I am mm-hmm. twice the distance into the race, I do hills that are much harder and sl- more rocky and just harder to get around than these. So I, it should feel good to be able to run up a nice trail in comparison. If I can interject here, this is maybe a little bit off topic, but but something you just said um, really kind of sparked something in me. I live in California now, but I'm not a native <laughs> Californian. You are a yeah. native Californian. You no longer live in uh-huh. the state. But in the 10, 11 years that I've lived in California now, especially the last, say, seven that I've really gotten into the trail and ultra scene, myself i feel like a lot of californians overhype how hard <laughs> courses are sometimes I, 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 yeah and, man and not and again like canyons was i mean it was no racetrack i mean there were fifteen thousand feet of elevation gate yeah, over 60 sure. miles that's not nothing but the trails are pretty buttery um i think the highest point of the race you guys got to is maybe 4500 5000 feet i'm just thinking to myself like people who live in real mountains and run at like actual altitudes that are much higher than that on rockier trails aren't going to have any problem at all with this. And I was like, the Euros especially, because there weren't a lot of Europeans, especially on the women's side of canyons. I'm like, this is going to feel like a runnable racetrack to them. Anyway, end end of my rant right there. Yeah, I mean, I I totally agree with you. I mean, it it was interesting. I think there's so many things that like just Everyone was so focused on that 15,000, 16,000 feet of vert. And was the one thing, we didn't really know what it was going to be. You plug it into a watch, Some it's a 14. I remember mine said 17. Uh, Noah Sunto said 21. So we really didn't know what it was going to be. But one of the things I kept on looking at the course profile, and I, I would say to Noah's about, was, yeah, it's, it's 14 or 15, whatever thousand feet, but we get 3,000 less feet of descent. And descent is like where it really hurts you, I think, the most. So that was like, and also you got 3,000 less feet of descent means that 15,000 is going to get spread out that much more. Right. You have like that much less of a timeline to get through the race where something like Speedgoat, it's, you know, 11-11. Like you're going to have to jam pack that in. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was like, that was one of the things I was just trying to talk myself up that the course wasn't going to be as bad as, we were thinking it it was and then yeah like you're spot on the runnability of the course it's just yeah it's just it's i mean they call it california carpet for a reason (laughs) by by and large like it it really is like you know you can certainly fall and trip and twist an ankle and and all of that stuff but compared to a lot of the other stuff that's out there especially what you're running on most of the time in utah it's pretty pretty freaking buttery yeah, it, it was. It was nice though. It was a. Uh, it was fun being on some really smooth sm- stuff for so long. Can't definitely enjoy that. Take me through the race itself. Hundred K is. Correct me if I'm wrong. Twelve miles longer than you've ever raced before. What was it like for you going into the unknown, just in terms of the distance of the race itself? Um. Yeah, it, it was a little daunting, you know, thinking sixty-two miles, but. I guess going into it, it was just how it was all going to play out. Was it going to be 62 miles of really fierce competition right away? Or was it going to be pretty easy running for the first 30 and then we're going to go? And and in in our case, it was pretty relaxed for the first 25. I think we had a lot of conversations going on and which kind of was making us all a little bit relaxed for what we were going into. Mm -hmm. But it, it was a little daunting kind of going into it. I haven't 
that was the first time I ever like kind of nailed something um, over 50K. Uh, when I did the North Face 50 uh, about a year and a half ago before this, it was, I went in post-injury or somewhat still injured and shouldn't have ran the race and really blew up and it just had a terrible last seven miles. But I just won. I knew that day if I had better training, it would have went pretty, really well. So I just kind of had to tell myself, I was like, I got through 40 on 42 that day on really horrible training. So hopefully now with months and months of good training back to back, that this 60 should, should feel pretty okay and fine to get through. During canyons, when did things start to shift? You just mentioned how the race was pretty relaxed up front for the first 25 miles or so. What was the first move of any significance that you recall? Um, we do the aid stations, uh, would always get a little hectic. Uh, when we got to Cal two, which was about 25 miles in, um, a lot of the guys got through really quick and I, I was a little bit slower and Noah, I was trying to kind of run with Noah since we're Salt Lake city buddies and trying to do, trying to do it together a little bit. And he wasn't feeling too good. And I kind of fell off the pack. Then it took me about probably four or five miles to catch up to him. I did, I did it pretty conservatively. I wasn't too stressed about it and kind of just naturally caught back up to him. And then, um, it wasn't like a till a few miles till the four cell aid station was when when things started to break up. I could tell some people were starting to get a little bit more tired and we were going up one of the hills and it was just it really didn't feel like too big of a grade to me. Um for especially what we run on out here and we were walking and I was like really surprised we were walking up uh, up that hill. But I knew we were all being very conservative, like playing the chess match a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and then like, we like kind of turned and started running again. And then it was just another grade that we were walking up and I was like, I, I can't do this. I need to go a little bit. And I didn't realize four hill was right there, but the last like half mile, mile of that hill, I just kind of separated not much more than 30 or 45 seconds from, from Max and Cole. And then from there, that's when the race was like, it's, it's on, we're not going to talk anymore. Like it's time to go. Were you feeling impatient during those moments where guys were hiking up the hill and you were like, uh, I don't know if we should be doing this? Or you're like, it's still early. We're not quite at halfway or we're, we're approaching halfway. I just need to kind of bite my tongue for a little while longer. And then if I'm still feeling good, like 10 miles from now, I can really start to crank. You know, it, it was weird because like we did like walk a couple other sections like at the course, like, but very quickly it was like, a really quick steep pitch and like we'd start walking and it was steep enough where I understood like, yeah, we could run up this, but you know, we're 15 miles into the race. Like we're not, it, it was more the gray than anything that like kind of made me like think there's no way I can't just be running this and it and it's going to hurt me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I kind of took off on that one. And then once the race kind of started to slowly break open, I wanted to be patient through Michigan bluff and down the big descent till we had like the, what I thought the biggest climb of the day, but it was after four. So like we had a big descent there and then the next hills, Max and I were together and I just kind of just slowly pulled away from him. He was, he was a uh, not so much walking, but he was just going at a probably more conservative pace with how experienced he is. And 
and I started to get away from there. And once I started to slowly break away, I was like, you might as well do it completely, not just kind of hang, hang around right in front of them. Were you running scared at that point or were you running with confidence? I was, I was running with a lot of confidence. Like, and that, I mean, we just went through Forest Hill aid station, which is just lined with people. And it was cool to actually hear a crowd again and adrenaline was pumping. So that, so that was one thing. And then I, again, I was just feeling really good at the time. And, and I was thinking, I was like, if we're, if they're going to be walking this, like this on like some of the steeper stuff, then I don't know. I felt like I was going to be in pretty good position on fitness and what I've been doing um, kind of over the previous months. When you hit say around the 50 mile mark, I mean, you are entering uncharted territory at that point, you've got 12 miles to go on that course. Those probably are 12 of the tougher miles of the race. How are you feeling when you got into the unknown? Um, so after Michigan bluff, once we went up that, you go down a big descent for a few miles and then um, it's about a three mile, three or four miles up to Deadwood, the Deadwood loop. And that hill was pretty hard. And I was, I wasn't so much losing confidence. I just knew I was, I was working pretty hard. Like, uh, like if I was doing a climb out here, like a climb out here, but you know, but in the middle of a 62 mile race is the, is the difference. And, you know, there wasn't many people that cheer you on. So it was probably the lowest part of the race. And then once I finally got to the aid station, I was like, okay, finally got to the aid station. And it was an out and back section. And uh, so it's cool about that is you get to see your competition if right. they're close to you, um, which every race should have, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, so we were, I went up it, went to the aid station. Again, it's like only like about a quarter or half mile um, out and back and did my aid took my time and then came back down and looked at my watch. I'm like, let's catch a split on what the next person's going to be. And like I was saying earlier, my friend Noah, he kind of wasn't feeling good. He told me like earlier in the race. So I just thought he was going to have a bad one. So I was expecting to see Max, Max or Cole come up, come up next. And it was, it was Noah. And it, that just really shot my adrenaline up. Mm -hmm. And from there, I, I just like let out some FES, FEA, like, like we're, we're going to do this one too. And, and we both just got stoked. And right then, like one, I thought one, I got to kick it in the gear because Noah's a lot better climber than me. And there's a good chance I could get caught on this last section. And then two is just like really exciting. Like thinking you're going to do something big with a friend. Do you know how many minutes you had on him when you it, passed in opposite directions? It wasn't much. And, and also to note, Max, Max also took a wrong turn um, at this point. So he could have been, where Noah was or close if not in front of me. Um, he took a wrong turn over for in Forest Hill, but when Noah, when Noah was there in second place, it was about one, maybe a minute and a half. So not too far, but that's three minutes plus he had to go to an aid station. So I was guessing about four or five minutes. I had on him at that point. When did you feel confident that you had it won? Um, I felt pretty confident after you do that Deadwood loop, which was five miles. You have 11 miles to go and it's a straight shot down for like a thousand feet um, to the next, to what I thought was going to be what was the last like really big climb. That's just really steep and grunt brutal. And once I was getting through that pretty well, I was thinking they could maybe be running as fast as me right now. But once I was on the flats, I, 
definitely I was feeling really good on like the flat flowy sections and that's when I kind of thought I had it in the bag and and at the same time I was like kind of letting off the gas a little bit because you know and your thought your one of the thoughts is you know you're gonna get this western ticket but you do have to recover um after this and the timeline's gonna be short so I'm not gonna dog it in at the same time but let off the gas a little bit and don't like just totally crush yourself if you don't need to was getting that ticket to Western one of your primary objectives when you decided to put canyons on the calendar, or is that something that <clears> came <throat> a little bit later? Because I mean, this last year plus has been really touch and go in terms of just racing opportunities in general and just having the opportunity to compete is huge. But I mean, here you are diving into the unknown with a hundred K knowing that you can be, competitive and knowing that you know if you do really well there is a possibility of the most uh, i hate to call it epic because that's very cliche californian (laughs) but epic hundred mile race at least in this country you know on the line for you you know it really wasn't like uh, when i signed up for the race when before i signed up for the race it was supposed to be lake sonoma which i've been wanted to do for the past couple like three years and just hasn't worked out um, for other issues. And once that got can- canceled, it was like, well, you know, Canyons is on the schedule. And I'll, I, it was almost like, why would even bother? It's a California race. Like, why is that one going to go off three weeks later when mm-hmm. Lake Sonoma couldn't? But you got to throw yourself in the, throw your name in the hat and, you know, hope it goes. You never, I with the vaccine and everything going on, you never knew if three weeks would make a big difference. And, um, and at that point, the big reason for doing Canyons was it's a ticket race, but not so much for taking the ticket, but it gets a lot of attention. And if you do good, you get a lot of respect because of it. And that was the main reason for going out there. And the uh, competition was looking pretty stout on the list. And then within that timeline, some of the races that I kind of had planned or some of the schedule I had planned going overseas this year, uh, some things fell through because of COVID and that kind of made me kind of more open the doors of maybe take this ticket if if you do if you are in the position to get it um western has never like been like the number one kind of go do thing on my mind because it is cool that it's like from the area that that i grew up in and not too far away but at the same time like one of the reasons why i got into the sport was to go see new places and that's not a new place Well, it's a little over eight weeks from the time that we're having this conversation. How are you thinking about it at this point? Um, I'm excited for it. I mean, after having such a good race, like you can't, it's hard not to be excited. Uh, being on the, how well the body felt on those trails uh, makes me excited. And the the biggest excitement is that list of people that's on that, um, mm-hmm. that's on, that's going to be running. Like that's, one of the main reasons why after, you know, some of the travel plans got messed up, like that was the other reason why I took it. I, you know, you look at that list and I was like, man, if I don't take this ticket, it's just going to look like a big cop out and not facing some of the best guys in in the country. So that, that, that's the exciting part about what's coming up next. I think one thing I want to dive into with you at this point is just the, strategic aspect of racing an ultra versus say racing 
a road marathon or even shorter distances. As you mentioned earlier, like road marathon, you're just on the gas from the get-go. The intensity is high the entire way. I mean, even in a race, it's a little over two hours long. You really can't lollygag. I mean, one or two moves get made, you're blown out the back and your day is, your day is mm-hmm. over. Um, but these longer races, especially, you know, 50K, 100K, up to 100 miles. I mean, you're out there, I mean, half or all day or longer uh, yeah, sometimes. Right. Like how going into these races, like how are you thinking about it from a strategic standpoint? Are you more relaxed than you would be going into a shorter race? Are you trying to conserve that physical and mental energy a little bit more? I'd love for you to take me through that. I think um, the big difference with like the ultras is like we all should be relaxed in the beginning. Um, It's going to be, it'd be an, if it went out so hard in the beginning with anybody, like it would be kind of wrong for the whole field because you're running such a long distance, I guess, like compared to a marathon. Uh, over the last years, I, I guess like, the main thing is me uh, when I get into a race, I think it's what's like kind of changed like my trajectory, at least in the road stuff was that I don't want to look at times anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big thing in the roads. Like, I don't want to look at times. I just want to compete. People would ask like, Oh, what are you shooting for? I'm like, I just want to compete. And that's like kind of been my answer for everyone. And in, in most races that I've done, like over the last many years, there's been a couple of times, like I've gone out to race at the competition. You could tell it wasn't going to be too stout. And, you know, you go out for time or course record on that by yourself. But when there's big competition, it's, it's just strictly about competing to me. And I always kind of wonder like my first time, like, debut at the marathon was uh you know i was going for 218 like that was the goal like you know your splits you know exactly what you're supposed to do and and i kind of look at it now and i'm like man like what maybe I, I only ran 10 seconds underneath that so i like barely got it and i kind of look at it now i'm like what if the standard was 216 would i have ran 10 seconds under 216 right and i and basically you, want, like, you wonder if you left something on the table yeah, you wonder if you left something on the table, and then, and then, I don't know. I just I I love to compete. That's the that's why I do hard workouts after work. Like you run every day because we love we love to run. But like the reason why I do hard workouts is because I lo- just love that competing aspect of it. And yeah, it is going to be hard in the ultra because there's so much time in the beginning. But I guess you just kind of got to feel out the race. Like how serious are we taking in the beginning, and how much. Uh, what areas your strength and the weaknesses are in the beginning or in the middle and end of the race. But I guess the number one thing is like, if I lose that competitive edge of like just enjoying the competitiveness part in the middle of the race, that's where it could get scary to me. When you say you love to compete, do you love to compete primarily against other people or like you mentioned competing in in workouts just competing against yourself or past versions of yourself i'd love to dig into that a little bit more with you i guess like just like like being in the mix of like something big uh i'll go back to that marathon like it was a five minute pr and it was strictly just because uh danny tapia was in it and he was like kind of the number one seed and he had a a seven minute pr faster than me but you know the goal that day was like i'm just gonna hang with danny and just see how long i could go and just compete as long as I could. And that's when, you know, something big happened. And yeah, I guess I, I just, that 
one-on-one competition like uh when we were talking about the moab marathon with andy wacker like that was just a fun race because the whole time like the gas was on and we were just like really in the moment of just like that pure competitiveness where you know if he wasn't there or i wasn't there like he might have been a couple minutes slower and cruised in kind of like i was talking towards the end of canes when i thought i kind of had it in the bag at that point and yeah i just really love like that that adrenaline rush of like competing with somebody. Have you always had that competitive mindset? Oh, I mean, yeah. In sports, like I've, I've definitely been like a silent competitor in a lot of things, I think. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up doing like all-star baseball and, and uh, soccer and all that kind of stuff. So it's always been kind of there in like the team competition, I guess like once I was in middle school, like I kind of look back on it now and same thing. Like once a, I got a little bit more confidence as like a one of the older kids and um that was competing. It was it was kind of like win or nothing kind of races uh um back then as well. So yeah, I always had that really competitive competitiveness. What do you mean by being a silent competitor? Um I guess like it's very hard for like my wife always gets mad at me. She's like, you never tell me anything. Like if like the goal was some goal that was like really big and it happened. Like she probably didn't know it was coming or didn't know it was going to happen because I don't, I don't really talk about it too much. I just, I think about it a lot of my runs, mm-hmm. but I don't, I, I don't put it out there very often. So I guess like that's kind of the more silent competitorness of me. Like I don't need to go post the goals of what I'm going to do. I just, I put them in my notebook a year in advance and then check them out at the end of the year. I love that. And I appreciate that because when you said silent competitor, I, the first thing I went to was, I'm like, Oh, you're playing a board game against someone. And you know, you're just, you're just trying to annihilate them at the board game, but you don't want to make it like outwardly known that that, (laughs) that that's your goal. Um, Or like you're walking past someone on, on the sidewalk. You're like, I got to get right in front of them, but I'm not going to let them know that I'm actually racing them at this. Oh yeah. No, I mean, there's a, there's a woman, uh, that's funny you say that like the past like five days of work, like, uh, that she works with me and we keep on hitting each other at the exact same time on the, on the road to work. And we take different routes and every day it's like, who's going to get to the parking lot first, <laughs> like kind of, kind of deal. So yeah, just a little competitiveness comes out over stupid things sometimes for sure. That example reminds me of uh, this new kind of urban street racing thing that you see in a lot of cities where they'll have a, they'll have a course, a start and yeah. a finish line. There's a checkpoint, but it's up to you what route you take to, exactly. to get there. And you and the women are, are trying to get to the same place, but you're taking opposite routes and seeing who can beat the other one there. It's weird. It's like been five times or four times this week. It's, it's, it's pretty odd, but kind of fun. <laughs> I want to take a big pivot and learn what your introduction to the sport of running was. Um, uh, junior high PE teacher like myself, I guess. Uh, I used to, you know, the competitiveness that we were just talking about um, mm-hmm. in junior high. Like we would uh, run the mile and we could compete as much as I could. Like as a little sixth grader, whether it was like a seventh or eighth graders uh, we were running against and, uh, it wasn't even my PE teacher. It was the other PE teacher. I remember him in the, lo- him in the locker room. He, he said, oh, Casales, you should go out for cross country. I'm like, okay, sure. And I didn't even know what cross country was. And and then that was the introduction to junior high cross country racing, which was like pretty uncompetitive. I mean, it wasn't too serious. It was more just hanging out with your friends. But 
when it was race time, like it was serious to me kind of, kind of deal. Is that what you think the other PE teacher saw in you when you were doing those time trials in phys ed class? I'm not sure. Uh, he, he was definitely in the like cross country track community. Like he would go out to, um, like high school cross country races and be like timers for him. I know, uh, his name, Mr. Walsh is what Walsh was what it was, but, um, yeah, I'm not really sure what he saw. I think, I think probably just a sixth grader that, you know, is just ultra competitive is probably what he did see. Um, and why he told me to go out. I'm not, but I'm really not sure. How are you thinking about running when you got to the end of your high school career? I know you went to American river before you went to Chico state. Um, so when I was in high school, we were at the Stanford cross country or Stanford track meet, and our hotel was kind of close. And my high school coach was like, Oh, let's go to the track and watch the college stuff. And we ended up watching the 10 K. I don't know if it was Scotty. I'm, it might've been Scotty, but anyway, there, there's a couple of Chico guys in there and he's kind of say, he's like, man, this could totally be you just like in a couple of years, like get your junior college stuff done out of the way. And then, and then, um, go compete with or go, go to Chico and start running the 10 K. And all I really heard was like 10 K and I, I didn't want to run 10 K on the track, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. Like back then, like whatever my coach, whatever my high school coach told me, like was a good idea. It was like, I took like, for I was just very serious about it. I'm like, okay, that's what I'll do kind of deal. And, um, yeah. So after that moment, that was the thing, uh, went to junior college for a couple of years. Um, so continue to progress, you know, um, under Rick Anderson, who was a great coach and then, um, was able to do exactly what the high school or Dave Monk, Dave Monk, my high school coach told me and ended up at Chico running 10 Ks. Did you seek out Chico state and coach Gary town or did he recruit you out of junior college? He recruited me out of junior college. Um, my coach made, I, I needed to go to junior college, um, just for academic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't like a bad student. I just didn't take, uh, I was just never on that like bound of four year college, like right away in high school. I didn't like take the right classes. And by the time, like, you know, times were good enough to do that. It was too late and I was okay with that. Um, I kind of knew that was going to be the option. And luckily there was a really good program only 45 minutes away from where I was at in uh, Sacramento. Do you remember your initial conversation with Gary town? Uh, yeah, it was right. I'm trying to think there, there's two times I, there might've, there was a really quick one, I think at like a state meet and he just kind of like, Oh yeah, I know you are like, you're on my radar. I'm pretty sure. But the first like call I ever got from him was, uh, after I won like a pretty good, uh, invitational in junior college uh my sophomore year it was pretty cool like finally getting the call from the coach that you've been waiting to call you (laughs) what was your experience like at chico um it was great met a lot of friends met my wife there um good team atmosphere uh couldn't ask for more i mean it was a fun four year or fun uh three years uh three three years i was there uh couldn't ask for much of a better experience just a good big bonding team that uh did a lot together and uh there wasn't a that many egos on the team because you know there's not all these like big uh scholarships coming in that a couple individuals are taking or big hotheads so 
that was kind of the cool thing is that kind of anybody that was on the team could kind of be that number one guy or top three guy before you knew it. So I think that was like a great part about our team. Where were you in the pecking order when you first transitioned there? And where did you end up by the time you graduated? Um, so my first year there in cross country, again, being all, or pretty competitive, I, I, I made it like pretty, I don't know, I won't say clear, but like right away I was like, I want to be in the first group and I'm going to try to push the first group and like workouts, which you got to be careful because that might not be the way like you should be doing things. But right away, that's kind of where I got into because that's, you know, like being a scoring member was like the goal. Uh, we had a, uh, we had a one really good uh, teammate, Brent, that was kind of like the, the number one guy at the time um, that we kind of fed off of. But yeah, I was anywhere from third to fifth that first year, kind of back and forth. And then, and finishing out, like I wasn't much different than uh, second, second to fourth, probably by my senior year because, uh, because Isaac Chavez was uh, such a beast, I guess. <laughs> In your first year, did Gary have to hold you back at all because you were so competitive and you were pushing so hard to get into that first group? Or did he just kind of let you do it and figure it out for yourself? Um, he would once in a while kind of hold me back or just say, like, you don't have to crush it all the time. But I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't, like, mess up a group workout because I was, like, pushing it so hard. I don't want to, like, put that out there. But it, I did always kind of want to be, like, right on the leader's shoulder, whoever was pacing. I kind of wanted to be right there all the time. His big thing was, like, you got to listen to your body. Like if something's hurting, you got to let me know, or we got, we got to talk about it. You can't just muscle through it. I think that was like his big concern with me. I didn't get a ton of injuries, but he knew like I wasn't someone that wasn't afraid to run on, run on an injury as well. How did you develop most during your time at Chico, both as an athlete and as a person? Um, I think uh, for running wise, it was just the mileage. Like I, I used to get a lot of stress fractures. Uh, not, all right, not a lot. I, I had like two or three stress fractures between like my junior high school and junior college. Uh, and it was mostly because like a uh, high mileage. And once I got there, maybe it was like a mix of like being on dirt all the time and kind of did something with my insoles that fixed. My mileage was able to jump from like 70 miles to 85 once I got there and then 85 to a little over a hundred um, by the time I graduated. So I think uh, just a real good structure of like um, runs per week was one big one. He gave it, I remember Gary gave us a sheet and I was like, if you're running 80, 85 miles, like this is a good way to break it down. And one of the, one of the days was like a Saturday and it was like, take a really easy Saturday, like a, only a five mile run, even though you're running 85 miles in that week. And then these are the workout days there's our long run on Sunday. So I think that was a a big difference in like being able to start progressing more mileage and building a bigger base because I wasn't getting injured or a stress fracture back then. And as a person, um, when I got, when I got there, I was, I was really serious about grades and classes. Um, I think uh, in high school, I wasn't so much like I said, like I went to junior college for a reason because I, kind of screwed around a lot as a, a high schooler. But uh, the last part of junior college, my coach really, Rick, uh, got me more serious about grades. And then once I got there, 
there wasn't too many classes I had uh, didn't take too seriously. There was a couple that were hard, and I didn't maybe get a good grade, but most I was there for a reason, and um, really didn't take it for grant. Really didn't take it for granted. And then the biggest like big change like was uh, doing that teaching credential. I mean, that just kind of took you from a student to a full full blown career working teacher while not getting paid and going to classes at night. I think that was a, just a big step in like maturity at like that last year being there. And then like met, met, met um, my wife there and, you know, developed a relationship with her and then, and somehow ended up moving out here. How are you thinking about your next steps when your collegiate career wrapped up at Chico? Um, the next steps was I wanted to do a marathon, but I didn't want to just jump into it right away. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that teaching credential I was just talking about, and it was like really demanding. I mean, I was trying to be an assistant coach for Gary, which I always feel like I didn't do as good at the job as I should have. And um, because I was going to school still at night, and then I was teaching from eight to two, um, just like a normal teacher um, as a as student teacher, and then. And then trying to go do workouts and stuff with the the team and trying to play assistant coach for, for that time. So that, so I didn't like have like a huge race schedule because just there was just so much going on, I think. And I needed to take the schooling part of it uh, seriously. So most of the races that post-collegiate year was whatever Chico was doing. I was kind of doing with them because I was driving them around anyways. Um, and I did do my debut half marathon with Tim, uh, that year and like sometime in October. And that was pretty cool. One of the big things was, I didn't, like I said, I didn't want to jump into a marathon right away, but Tim Tolson was doing his, uh, he was doing a marathon at CIM and was trying to get a qualifier. So I thought like, let's get some experience. And I, I helped pace him like 20 miles through that first marathon, which gave a lot of experience until like you hit that the last like, you know, real six miles of the race. It was kind of cool to get like that idea of what the marathon was going to be like. Was Gary still coaching you for those first couple years after your eligibility ran out at Chico? The first year he was just strictly because I was next to him and we Mm were, you know, like I was still with the team pretty much at that point. Um, After that, I kind of like tried asking him and he gave me a look like that's not going to happen because he has so many athletes and, not every alum could get coached by Gary, which is totally understandable. Um, so he kind of just helped me out with a, a training plan, more to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time uh, for my first marathon, and then that's when I moved to Salt Lake City. And so I, w- I didn't have access to just talk to him all the time anyway. So every like once a month or every six weeks, I would kind of fill him in with like how things were going. Or if something kind of came up that I needed to switch around, I'd ask his opinion on it but it was really only that first like six months being away from chico that he kind of kept coaching me in a really brief uh time period uh before the 16 trials and that was just because uh i was coming out of injury and i didn't want to get re-injured so i needed like somebody to tell me like how to push myself through that period have you had any other coaches since or have you been largely self-coached um self-coached the whole time since has that been challenging for you at all? I mean, obviously you've um, had success, but can it get hard when you don't have someone to bounce ideas off of or get feedback on a workout? 
And there's so much like information that we could get like on the internet or see what people are doing or, or coaches I've known over the years that I, for the information wise and just kind of always like being like a student of the sport. So that's like the information part hasn't been too bad, but there is times where, you know, like it wouldn't be, there'd be, there's like weeks at a time, I guess, where it'd be really nice to have a coach. So I kind of just stay on track or just like kind of more structured right away. But there's just so many times, like, especially with my job and what I have going on in life that like having a coach is great, but sometimes they just don't know what's, they don't know the full picture. Like, Mm -hmm. like I'm standing like 30 to 35 hours a week at my job. So sometimes like I, like the workout just isn't going to be right. And it's nice to be able to make adjustments because I know that, that whatever that life situation that was going on, uh, happened that week I could adjust it and I, I don't got to feel guilty about it where sometimes when I when I'd have a coach you know like you don't want to disappoint your coach is like the problem um with that and that's like one of the biggest benefits I think about at being self-coached and and I, I've I've coached for many years like like when I was in junior college I was actually going down to Fairfield every uh for one semester and I was a coach in high school there and then did the assistant coach with Gary and I coach a couple athletes now like just for fun. So I really like coaching in general and know the benefits of having a coach. I guess like I've just gotten away with it enough where I, I haven't decided to get one. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I mean, I've been in a similar boat myself where I had a great coach in college and I worked with some great coaches coming out of school, but now I'm at a point where my life is just so strange it's mm-hmm. nice to have the the flexibility to just do what I need to do for myself on a weekly basis and, and also have just the knowledge, experience, and, and confidence to make the decisions that I need to make for myself without burdening another person. But on the flip side, like that's what I do for most of my yeah, living right. is, is coach other people. Um, yeah, and, I and it's exactly it. that because I, I try to pride myself in getting to like know my athletes and what they have going on in their life mm-hmm. outside of running so that I can, you know, factor that into my decision making when I'm, I'm writing their schedule. And it, it is, it's, it's tricky business. But I mean, I think that's, you know, that's what you have to do to, to be a successful coach, especially for post collegiates, whether they're elite or not. Yeah, I, I just feel like if I had a coach right now, sometimes they'd be like, well, what do you really want? Because like, you know, like in the times, like I've said, like, oh, you want to do a trail marathon, but 30 days later, you want to do a road marathon. Like, what are we doing here? And I think that's like one of the other things, like I bounce around with so many things that I, I'd almost feel bad for like a coach, like wanted to take <laughs> something seriously on it, like, or would take me seriously on like some of the things I want to do yeah that's exactly it i mean i i have crazy ideas for myself and i like the self-experimentation part Uh of it and i i think a big driver for me is not wanting to drive a coach crazy with my other (laughs) ideas even though i know like some accountability would be good and i could certainly learn something but i'm like i know i'm just i'm like I'd rather like kind of have that flexibility and experiment on myself rather than like subject you to my nuttiness yeah it's 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 so true few more things before we wrap up when did you know that you wanted to be a PE teacher um so I always thought I was going to get into coaching more than anything and then oftentimes coaching you know is it's a PE teacher high school coach is kind of the deal or I mean you could be another another type of teacher as well but my high school coach was a PE teacher and I really 
you know, like what he did. And like I said, I took a lot of his word word uh, seriously back then. And so he kind of got, he's, he's the reason why I kind of thought about getting the PE teaching. Um, and again, it was more for the coaching. And then later on, I thought it was going to be more collegiate or potentially, you know, trying to steal that job from like Rick Anderson over at ARC it was like a, a serious thing for like a long time until I got out here pretty much. But it wasn't until I did my student teaching in Chico, I got, I got paired up with the junior high. And once I started doing the junior high stuff, like I really just really liked that age and how much like fun kids can have and teaching them different skills. And like, they're just like more open to things where the problem with the high school PE teacher is like, you know, half the kids like don't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. And that kind of scares me. Another thing that scares me is a lot of other high school PE teachers, like they kind of aren't into teaching PE. They just want to go watch film for their basketball team or something like that. And I wouldn't really want to work with um, people like that to say. So that's one of the reasons why I've stuck in junior high and I've really liked it. I could still coach junior high and kind of still live the lifestyle that I'm living right now and still train hard because the the seriousness of a six-week or eight-week junior high schedule is like pretty minimal where at high school you're going to have to run camps and, you know, do Saturday Saturday stuff with them if you want that successful program, which I would want if I was doing it. So I guess right now, like, a little bit of the selfishness of wanting to do my own thing mixed in with like just how much I like working with junior high kids is what's kept me there right now. Do the kids that you teach know about your competitive running pursuits? Uh, not really. There, there, I've, some schools have like kind of known about it, but uh, middle school kids, they, they don't know the difference between anything. Like, like <laughs> they're, they're just kind of funny. Like some of them know, like ever heard like, they, they, it often goes back to the Olympic trials. Like once in a while, every year, it's like I'll be we'll be doing something, and we'll have to pull out like a laptop or a Chromebook for something, and then a kid will Google me, and they're like, "You went to the Olympics?" I'm like, "I didn't go to the Olympics," <laughs> and and then like the next six periods, like everybody's like, "So you went to the Olympics?" I'm like, "I didn't go to the Olympics," <laughs> so they know a little bit, but um, it more flies over their head. Um, Again, I've been very quiet about it. Like uh, it, the first junior high school that I worked at, it took like two years for um, even like a staff member to know like that I was like a competitive runner until like uh, someone Googled me, I guess, and kind of found out. <laughs> you could just go in on a weekend, take care of business over 100K and two days later, just be right back in front of the students and no one would ever know you were gone. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much how it is. I get four personal days a year, so I, I take them pretty seriously. <laughs> I know that you're a relatively new parent. I'm curious, how has that changed your perspective on your competitive running pursuits or just life priorities in general? Um, competitiveness, I, I mean, I don't know if there's been too much change in competitiveness. Like, um, It's been fun fun having her around, but yeah, I can't really dig too much into that, but just like responsibility wise, like, I guess like I had this, this new uh, school I've been working at and it was the first time I've like been out of school where I could actually run, run there and back. And I was like, Oh, as soon as I start working there, I'm going to start running there and back. And I never did once. And as soon as uh, my daughter was born, I was like, I maybe need to try this because I could save 20 minutes here or there, which mm-hmm. actually is really like 40 or 45 minutes. Like 
and then leads into an hour before you know it because you get stopped for so many other things. And I started doing that. And so with her, it's like, I'll do anything to save that little bit of time. So then I started running to work and actually maybe just that much more consistent and more in a rhythm. And that's like for my aerobic runs or like any kind of workouts I do like in town, but again, I'll, I'll do weird stuff. Like I'll, I'll, I'll drive to work and then I'll leave my truck at work and then run home to do a workout. So then the next day I could run to work, get my truck and go to the trailhead. So it's like a little bit of a puzzle to kind of figure everything out sometimes, but I'll just do whatever I can to like get that little bit of extra time to one, be with the family and then to just kind of just do the, do those responsibilities. It's exactly why you can't have a coach who could keep up with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, you've got Western States a couple months from now. I know you've got other big goals that you want to pursue in trail and ultra running. Do you have any interest in going back to the roads at all and competing at the marathon distance or even below that? CIM and CIM only. That's it. Why CIM and CIM only? It's the only race that matters to me uh, when it comes to roads. It's just, uh, that's where I grew up. It's the first road race I ever did as a um, relay. I've ran it. I think it's like, I've been, I've ran within the race like 11 times and that's just home. So if I could go back there and do something big, that's kind of the only thing that really matters to me on the roads anymore. Last question at Western States, eight weeks from now, you are going to line up against Tim Tollison, who you mentioned earlier is part of the reason you got into this craziness to Mm. begin with. Have you given that any thought at all? and what that will be like for you a little bit we've been joking around on like some of the stuff like he was like he like put something up about when him and i did the trials together and when we did it uh we were both injured so we we're not taking it seriously we just did a loop and and intentionally dropped out and there's like a picture right. of us like smiling so it's like kind of it's really cool to finally like be back in a race with them this is gonna be the first trail race i've only done a half marathon that half marathon with them mm-hmm we were supposed to do a world championship, like a trail world championship in Portugal. I think it was in uh, 2019, but that's when uh, I got a uh, sports hernia. So I had to pull out and then we had a really stacked team that was supposed to happen. And then like everybody got injured on it and it got demolished. I think it was like Tim, Zach Miller, Mario Mendoza and I, or something like that. And uh, so that fell through, which was a bummer because I was really excited like, to not just go on that USA team, but like to go represent it with Tim. So this is, I guess like, it's such a big stage. It's really cool that I'm going to be able to do it with like someone that's kind of mentored me through the sport. I think that's awesome. Anthony Costales, this has been super fun. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you, Mario. It's been a blast. Right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of the sport. They recently released their spring collection full of stylish gear perfected for the pursuit of personal excellence. Designed for running hard and logging miles as the season shifts, this collection is designed with endurance in mind. And right now, Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. 
Just use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out at tracksmith.com. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. They're also super affordable, with most pairs costing just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. I'm a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So, if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of Gooders, head over to gooder.com slash Mario, or enter the code Mario at checkout to take advantage of a great deal. 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your entire order. Your face will thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. Couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 